Listeners, and welcome to The Pod and the Pendulum, the podcast that covers horror movie franchises, one movie and one episode at a time. As always, I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, and we have a crackerjack lineup of regulars, along with a special guest tonight. For our first up from the Disenfranchised podcast, and returning to the co host chair once again, we have Mr. Stephen Foxworthy. Stephen, how are you? Doing great, Mike. Absolutely. Ready for Chucky to get lucky. Finally. Excellent. Yes. Also with us, uh, along with her horror review site, We Who Walk Here, her work has appeared on Film Cred, Dread Central, and Daily Grindhouse, along with other places. Back in her co-host chair once again, it is Jessica Scott. Jessica, how's it going? It's going really well. I'm very excited to talk about Tiffany today. I... God, you're speaking my language <laughs> at this point. I'm going to apologize in advance for anything I may say about Tiffany that is over the line. Oh, my goodness. But we also have a very special guest tonight. He is the co-founder of the site and podcast Certified Forgotten. His work has appeared in Bloody Disgusting, IGN, Fangoria, and many more outlets. You last heard him here. We talked about the Evil Dead remake. Domo Arigato, Mr. Matt Donato, how are we? I am so happy you brought me back after I burned the podcast down last time with my spicy hot Evil Dead takes. I'm, gl- I'm glad you it's still did standing. not. You were a goddamn delight to have on that. That was show. a great episode. I got to tell you, Matt, that was a great episode. I appreciate that so much, and I appreciate you talking about the uh, best Evil Dead movie. We talked about a Evil Dead movie that's very good. <laughs> the best Evil Dead movie, exactly. Oh my goodness. We've talked about that on Disenfranchised too. So. You know what? We're not here to relitigate that. It is a very good movie. Let's it do is it. a good movie. So <laughs> it is um, a good movie. We are here to talk about tonight. We are here to talk about Chucky once again. We're at like the midpoint of the franchise, and we're here to talk about what is probably the fan favorite of the series. And I would argue probably the reason why we still talk about Chucky to this day. We're here to talk about 1998's Bride of Chucky. So before we kind of dive into the movie proper, let's talk about maybe the first time we saw Bride of Check Chucky and why we might love it or why we might hate it. You know, if you hate it, speak now or forever hold your peace. And I realized when I wrote that that I was writing a pun. Um, and that just hit me now that that's very punny. My bad. Matt, why don't you kick things off as our guest? What is it about Bride of Chucky that you love so much? So what I love about Bride of Chucky is I'm going to go to my horror comedy appeal and just say mm-hmm. that like my love of horror comedies is what kind of sustains a lot of my favorite films uh, and Bride of Chucky being in my mind so revolutionary uh, for a sequel because you know many many sequels go on for a long time and you know Friday the 13th especially there are its subversions and you bring in telekinesis and you bring in hell and you bring in space like we know franchises can take some big swings, but I appreciate Bride of Chucky amongst, you know, probably the top of any horror sequel ever 
because the swings it takes are kind of not too over the top. We're just going Bride of Frankenstein. We're just re- you know introducing Does Chucky Get Lucky to quote the tag that's already been said. Um, but doing it in a way that totally reinvigorated the franchise because like Child's Play 3 could have been an ending point. It really could have been exactly where that franchise died. But the idea that they took the best aspects of what they had gotten from Child's Play 1, 2, and 3, and they saw the comedy was starting to get more and more. Everyone liked Chucky's quips, and, you know, they could have a little more fun with it. And then to just say, screw it, we're going completely, like, post-Scream. We're going to do exactly what, like, all of these other films are starting to do. And we're going to have fun with this franchise. We're going to be self-referential. We're going to do things that are meta and goofy and silly. And I'm going to say again to this day, I don't think there has been a sequel that has, like, basically created a new legacy for a franchise in any way because introducing tiff like you just said mike like completely took that franchise to another level and we talk about tiff just as much as we talk about chucky mm-hmm. but chucky's in every movie and tiff's only in a few of them so like that's for a reason absolutely i agree with everything you said right there and jessica how about yourself um yeah i have not seen this one a lot i've only seen it twice uh, the first time I saw it selfishly, I wanted to cosplay as Tiffany and I have a rule that I don't cosplay a movie unless I've seen it <laughs> because I like to embody the character. Um, so that was the reason I watched the movie so I could do Tiffany. Mm-hmm. Don't follow up on that with a joke or anything. Um, but this, I rewatched it for this one and I just, I fell in love with it even more because I love that this is the turning point where the series gets really campy and starts getting really queer which is what I love about Chucky. And I do love that it embodies a lot of my favorite things about 90s horror. Like it does do the self-referential thing, but it doesn't fall over itself doing that. Like it's very funny, but it's it still carves its own way without getting too into the uh-uh, winking at the audience. You get the joke, you get the joke. It's very smart and very deliberate with the jokes. And, you know, like Matt said, it does reinvent itself. Like a lot of franchises run out of steam at this point and this one it just completely started over basically and like i said the the camp and the queer elements that's what i love about chucky the most so that kind of i get into this series around this point i'm i I love the earlier movies but this is when it really gets to be like okay this is this is for me i'm a a chucky fan absolutely and what what made you want to cosplay as Tiffany before you had seen the movie? Um, well, just as a huge Jennifer Tilly fan, I mm-hmm. adore her. And I have, you know, being a horror fan on Twitter, you kind of get a sense of these characters and these moments by osmosis. Like people share mm-hmm. GIFs and they share videos. And I knew who, who Tiffany was even before I had seen the movie. And I was obsessed with her. And... But really diving into the movie and getting a sense of her character, I was like, no, Tiffany is my obsession, my true love. I love her so mm-hmm. much. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously the aesthetic. She's gorgeous. She's a badass. She's, you know, really tough and sexy and smart um, and homicidal, which is a great combination for horror. Um, so she's just a lot of fun to dress up as. Oh. I feel like tonight is going to be a huge love fest. Like there's going to be very few negative things to say on this show, <laughs> which I'm excited for, which I think is is great. Um, Steven, how about yourself? Uh, so I think I mentioned when I was on for uh, Child's Play 2 that I, I watched this franchise for the first time, like within the last couple of mm-hmm. years, uh, just because I was like, Chucky, what's that about? Right. 
Um, so I just kind of watched through all of these. And this was the first I, I, I enjoyed the second one. The second one was the first one that made me kind of perk up and go, there's some juice here. And it was the elements that were very inspired by like German expressionism. It's the, the deep focus, like the constant deep focus. Um, and then to kind of see all of that just blatantly ignored in three, I was like, is this going anywhere? And then I get to Bride of Chucky and they just embrace all that stuff and run headlong into it and then make it funny and campy and goofy and make it like insanely queer. And I'm just like, this is exactly what this franchise needed. I, as a cishet white guy, am like, this is my shit, like a hundred percent my shit. Like, I love this. I don't know why, but this resonates. So I'm like, this is really fun. This is where the franchise like kicks off. Um, for me personally, I, I just had a blast with this movie and I still do have a blast with this movie. I think of all of the kind of late nineties post scream, let's be meta and self-referential. I think the child's play franchise or the Chucky franchise as it is at this point, um, I think recuses itself best of that. Like it does that stuff better than any other horror franchise does because I think man, I didn't think it's largely because of Mancini. Like he's just very smart with the way that he writes this stuff. And like, he's right, just right in tune with the zeitgeist. He doesn't overplay his hand. He doesn't undersell anything. Everything is pitched right down the middle, right where it needs to be. And I am a hundred percent here for it. Yeah. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Excellent. I know for me, I'm pretty sure like this is the first one that I watched in the series. Like it was a Netflix rental back when Netflix would send you the discs. And I had no idea what I was in for, but immediately was like taken by it. Um, Because like my favorite franchise of all time is A Nightmare on Elm Street, where you have like a very quippy slasher killer. And that's what Chucky becomes at this point. Like by this, at this stage, like, you know, the, the audience is fully there to hear like Brad Dourif um, give you the quips while he's like brandishing a knife. Uh, and this embraces it. Um, for me, like watching it now, like as somebody that was like a teenager and then a young adult in the 90s, um, in someone who kind of feels like it was like the last like really fun period of our cultural history before things took a very sharp nose turn, no, nose dive. Um, I love this movie just embraces that kind of like mid nineties vibe, like right when like there was like still punk and alternative and it was before like new metal took over, you know, um, I don't know if you guys have seen like that Woodstock 99 documentary, um, but like with the turn of the century, you went from having this kind of like fun kind of college rock vibe to angry white dudes that are angry just for the sake of getting pissed off. Um, and this is like right before that period kicks in. So to me, it brings me back to like a very warm and fuzzy nostalgic place. Um, Although we it, can't discredit the fact that Rob Zombie with living dead girl, <laughs> like literally made that the title track. <laughs> but you, you let's know not, what, let's though, not like, leave that out because that is very important. Sure. But I would say there is like a world of difference between like Rob zombies bland uh, brand of like, kind of like schlock rock and like schlock metal. There is like a world that, cause that is still like really fun and campy and creative. Like that doesn't sound anything like limp biscuit to me. Do you know what I mean? Like they kind of get lumped in together. 
Um, and I can tell you that like, as someone that has had to do like lunch duties, like I've put on Dracula for fourth graders and have seen like a cafeteria full of fourth grade kids, like get up and dance to Dracula. And it is like the most fun fucking thing. Um, I'm not doing that to break shit from Limp Biscuit, You know, I'm definitely not doing that to like, I did it all for the nookie. Um, and I don't, you know, like Rob Zombie to me, like there was always like something nerdy, super, super nerdy about him. Like he's the kid that like stayed in his room and watched horror movies and ate Cool Ranch Doritos and played like Kiss Records and then went on to like have a lot of success. Whereas, you know, a lot of these other bands are the guys that would like beat the crap out of someone like him, you know, for lack of a better term. So, well, if you want to tie it right to Mancini, I mean, these are two people writing from their experiences. Like these are two people, oh, yeah. I think, as Steven was saying about Mancini, mm-hmm. and how he's the lifeblood of this whole franchise. I mean, yeah. it does get better on Bride of Chucky because he's allowed to actually write as himself. He's no longer mm-hmm. hiding who he is in his scripts anymore. Yeah. And like you see it come out in Bride of Chucky and then it comes out full force and seed and everything that comes after that. But yes, that is that is zombie, too. I mean, like we know zombie is the diehard. We know zombie he's doing the monsters not because like he wants to cash mm-hmm. in a monsters remake like no he no. adores this property and like bleeds it like so yeah I, if there, there's your weird tie between don mancini and rob mm-hmm. zombie just two dudes loving what they do and doing what they love on a very quick side note i for whatever reason rewatched his 2007 halloween and long time listeners, if you've been with us since the start of the show, like when Jerry and I did that, we were actually criticized by fans of the show for being too negative because we really went hard on that. And I'm like, after rewatching it yesterday, I'm like, I might actually, if not like, like really appreciate what he was going for, at least for the first hour of that movie. So I don't know. Maybe we'll talk more about that in October. I'll figure something out. A reappraisal. Um and Matt, that might be up your alley, being the man who writes the remake column over it, the revenge of the remakes. Over so it. I've been avoiding um, Halloween for that very reason, uh, because I don't know how the comments would uh, <laughs> would take on my take. Yeah. So like I've I've been tiptoeing around it. I will get to it eventually. But uh, sa- same thing you just right. said. Like, but I'm we're a safe space here, Matt. We're a safe space here. Okay. We, You're among no friends. bullying zone. All right. Very, very quickly, I'm going to go into some of the background and behind the scenes stuff. And, you know, we've mentioned Child's Play 3, which I think we talked about last week. And, you know, Rachel and I both liked that movie more than its reputation would have suggested. But both uh, writer Don Mancini and producer David Kirshner decide if the series is going to continue, that it needs to go in a new direction. So they make the first decision is they're going to move away from like Andy Barclay as one of the kind of linchpins of the series they're going to kind of just ignore him completely which is weird because child's play 3 ends on a pretty big cliffhanger of like andy being thrown in the back of a squad car so for all we know like andy is doing 20 to life for various murders like never to be heard from again um but they know like look chucky is who everyone's coming to see at this point let's put the focus on him um But after 1991, like teen horror is kind of in the doldrums. It's replaced by really like, you know, more prestige fair, like psychological thrillers, which, you know, are really gussied up slasher fair with name stars and this like sheen of respectability. 
to them. Not something that your like teenage crowd is heading out to see on a Friday night at the multiplex. So by 1996, a tiny movie called Scream hits theaters. It seems to do okay. Some people say they like it. And maybe you folks have heard of it. Who's to say? Um, but all of a sudden, surprisingly after that, um, teen horror movies and slasher movies are hot again. So, you know, my question for y'all is, what are your general thoughts on this period of horror? Like that late, mid to late 90s post-Scream boon. What are we seeing that we either love or don't love about this time period? This was when I was a teenager, so this is kind of a sweet spot for me, if for no other reason than nostalgia. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm obsessed with the urban legends, and I know what you did last summers, and things like that. Even when they were not of the best quality, I love them. Um, I think there is a point where you can get too self-referential, but I do enjoy the sense of fun and just, you know, screw it, we're going to go for it. We're just going to have fun with this vibe of late 90s horror. Like, as you said before, it kind of gets a little grimdark later on, even though I appreciate that at times, too. Um, I'm I'm just a huge fan of this style of slasher where, you know, combining horror and comedy, um, being outrageous for the sake of it, just for the love of, you know, practical effects and for making people scream and laugh and uh, say, holy shit, I can't believe they did that. You know, I, I'm a huge fan of that. You know, the John Ritter with nails in his face and, well, that looks familiar. I'm a sucker for that kind of thing. Um, so I'm a big fan of this era of horror. Mm hmm. Yeah, I love Urban Legend. We've talked about that movie before. I love Jamie Bl both of Jamie Blanks's slasher movie entries, that and Valentine. This would have been a time period where I was going to the movies like every Friday after work with a group of friends and seeing whatever played. It's, you know, we think about this era is mostly the slashers that came out, but there are some like really weird and big swings and misses too. Like this is the same year that Roland Emmerich's Godzilla starring one Matthew Broderick comes out. Uh, and that's the last we'll ever speak of that movie. Um, but it kind of felt like this, you know, it, it, in some ways it feels like 2021 and 2022 in that like horror, there's a new horror movie almost every other week on the big screen. It seems to do reasonably well. Um, and if it, you know, has an R rating or a slasher killer in it uh, or anything to do with horror, like audiences are going to turn out uh, to some degree. How about yourself, Matt? What is your thoughts on this? I mean, I guess so we're talking about post scream and we're talking about the slasher landscape from there on out. I'm less into some of the I know what you did last summers mm -hmm. uh, and those kind of films only because I feel like post scream everyone had the wrong ideas about what made scream good um mm -hmm. and the issue with some of those films not all of them i do have fun with plenty of them uh but I, the issue i take with some of those is either you know it's too funny and it doesn't understand that like self-referential -refer and the winking like has to have a balance uh and if you watch the scream films they are also bloody gory they work as slasher films but they are also meta commentary some of those slashers just want it to be okay well, we're just going to do the meta commentary and we're just going to throw it all against the window and hope some of it works. Or you have the ones that are just the carbon copy cutoffs that just here's a villain. Here are some hot teens who are going to get slashed and that's all we care about. And mm -hmm. just what came from that, I think, 
gets a little better when we get a little deeper into maybe like out of late 90s into early 2000s uh because i i'm gonna start saying you know like the remake era i i had so much fun with a lot of those slashers and the way that you take post scream then you put it into the slasher lens on a remake or something of that nature and you can have fun with an old property in a new way that's when it becomes more interesting to me but then again then we have to talk about like the darkness that comes in early 2000s and you really have like the post 9-11 trauma and you have all those things that make a dark gritty reboot like texas chainsaw friday nightmare all of those went like the dark gritty route instead and so like i feel like scream kind of had its few years where it did churn out a lot of good sleepover horror which there has to be like a good reason you know like people want that that's totally fine like i'm happy everyone has fun with that kind of stuff but like I think for myself, I just gravitate more towards like, okay, Friday the 13th, the remake is just a really good condensation or like condensing of the first three movies or how the Nightmare remake is utterly atrocious. And like, why is it bad for those reasons? Like I had more fun like dissecting there, I would say a little bit. You do get some really like, it's not quite the remake era, but you get like, I think Gus Van Sand remake. That's like an almost shot for shot remake of psycho just because like that's what he wanted to do with his his oscar i've talked before about aronofsky like taking all of his oscar cachet from black swan and lighting it on fire to do mother um we in you know same thing like gus van sant being like why don't i take all this oscar cachet and remake psycho but do it pretty much as a shot for shot remake starring a masturbating vince vaughn um which I'm looking forward to covering that at some point. But you get The Faculty, which isn't necessarily a direct remake, but it's definitely an update of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, except set for the teenage crowd. So you get that pre-2000s remake vibe, but with like a much more kind of fun, lighthearted, you know, like Josh Hartnett is your local town drug dealer banging the hot school teacher. Um, God, we need more of that. I think you know what I'm saying. Well, Dark Castle Entertainment too. We mm-hmm. if we're talking remakes pre, or sorry, like post Scream, mm-hmm. but not House of Haunted World, Hill, like mm-hmm. House on Haunted Hill, uh, House of Wax, goes, House of, like House of Wax gets a little deeper. But like no. for me, if we're talking about the period of late '90s and early 2000s yeah. horror, you have to dar- talk about Dark Castle Entertainment because that oh, is yeah. that is the pinnacle. That's where yeah. I, that's what I was watching, like versus mm-hmm. the other films. I am just watching whatever mm-hmm. the hell they're spending $40 million on to like make no profit. I don't care. Yeah. I want it. I, I I think another thing that separates the faculty and, and again, this is just me speaking as an tourist, but is is the Williamson of it all. Like he's kind of the the mastermind behind the script on Scream. Mm-hmm. He's the one that kind of sets the template for what this thing is. So it makes sense that he's going to do it better than anybody else. Yeah when it comes to the faculty. And I think the faculty kind of sets itself apart from the others in that era for that very reason, because it's, it's doing the self referential thing from the guy who told us how to do the self referential thing. Like he's someone who knows how it's done. And again, I think Mancini is another one who clearly knows how to do that and do that well um, versus the pretenders who are just like, this is what this thing is, right? Like we can do this. And like all great pieces of art, the great artists make it look easy and the bad artists show you how hard it really mm-hmm. is. I will say, and that's, I think exactly what we see in this era. I, I like more Williamson's work 
that I don't like overall, but he does have this thing where he writes how he, all of his characters sound like how teenagers think they sound when they're really smart, but I don't know uh-huh. any teenagers that actually talk like that type of deal. No, it reminds me honestly of like what I call Gilmore girls dialogue where everything's just a little too clever. Like you're like, there is no way that everybody in this town is like referencing these great works of art this proficiently off the top of their head with and and surviving on nothing but coffee. Like, I don't know what the hell is in the water in stars hollow, but Kevin Williamson must be importing it to wherever he's writing from because they hit all his characters kind of write or speak in that kind of heightened sort now of way. I'm mad we never got a Gilmore Girls slasher. Like that's all you've literally just made me mad about that because a perfect show in Gilmore Girls needed a slasher. There was like a slasher episode of Dawson's Creek. You know, I, I think I don't remember the episode all that well. I know they played a clip of it in the new scream and it made me just like giggle. Um, Cause I'm like, I remember that. Um, yeah. I, I sometimes threaten myself to go back and rewatch Dawson's Creek, but I don't have that level of self-loathing. Um so pressing pressing on here just a little bit, basically. So at this point, uh, Mancini and producer David Kirshner, they decide like it's time to bring Chucky back again. They've had this idea gesticulating for a while of like bringing the Bride of Chucky movie. Um, they envision this hodgepodge of genres where you have like a slasher movie, a romantic comedy and like a uh, buddy travel movie kind of blending all of those things together, but making it funny. Um, they bring on Hong Kong filmmaker Ronnie Yu uh, after seeing his movie Bride with the White Hair. Yu's uh, probably best known for Freddy vs. Jason, uh, which was a massive hit just a few years later. And I think with Yu bringing like this outsider in, he sees the ridiculousness of a lot of these American villains and just sees how like sees the comic potential of them. And he doesn't have any great attachment to them. Like you see this happen sometimes with people that grew up and love these movies. They get too precious about it and like worry, like what if I get it wrong? Uh, he's just like, fuck it. This is stupid. It's about a doll that murders people. Uh, and he wants to bang this other doll. Like this is a comedy. Um, and he gives this really weird energy here. So, Gina Gershwin was actually, I believe, initially offered the role of Tiffany, but had to turn it down. But she convinced Jennifer Tilly to take it. Uh, Her, Tilly and Duriff film all their dialogue together just prior to the movie going to shoot um, or the record all their dialogue together before going to shoot. Um, There are three puppeteers per doll just for the facial movements, 17 puppeteers total. Um, despite the CGI that's used for the kills, and it does have that late 90s really bad CGI, despite that, the dolls are still practical. And again, that's why this series works so well, is because like Chucky is a living, breathing, functional thing that you can you can touch him. Uh, and I think that that makes a huge difference over going CGI. Um, filmed partially in Niagara Falls and... I had this like vague memory of seeing Chucky on a wrestling show. And I'm like, was that a fever dream? So it is not interrupting Rick Steiner's promo. So I look that up and we're going to drop a clip of that in right here with Chucky 
interrupting Rick Steiner, him and Mean Gene Okerlund. Here he is on screen. So take a listen. Steiner versus Steiner. The one that never happened at Fall Brawl is going to happen at Halloween Havoc. A lot of stress for both you and members of your family. Do you think you pushed too hard, Rick, for this particular match? No, I don't, Gene. You know, my brother, he's brought this on himself, and this has been coming for a long, long time, Gene. When we get the fall. What? What the devil? What is that? Wait a minute. Take a look. Get that dummy out of here. We're trying to conduct an interview. <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> Shut him up, please. Give it a rest. Come <laughs> <laughs> out here. <laughs> what? Hey, Wait a cue ball. Who you calling a dummy? You're standing there with the genetic throwback who barks at the moon. I'm doing love scenes with Jennifer Tilly. And you're calling me a dummy? Say it again. Yeah. We call you. You're a dummy. Hey, what's the matter? For a guy who never shuts up, you sure don't have much to say, mean Gene. Well, uh, just just a second here, uh, Chucky. Shut the hell up. I didn't come here to talk to you anyway. I came here to talk to that idiot standing next to you. Hey, hey, bring your raggedy rear end down here. You got something like to say to me. That, wouldn't you, Ricky? You've been playing with dolls all your life. At least that's what your mother tells me. But I'm not your type. You need a kinder, gentler, dumber doll. Me? I'd show you what it's like to get your head twisted off, your arms and legs bent and broken, and when I'm done with you, I'd let the dogs chew on you like some old shoe. How would you like that, Ricky? You got something to say? Say it! If you ain't got nothing to say, get the heck out of here! I'm here to tell everyone that if they want to see a real pro at work, they should go and see my new movie, Bride of Chucky. Please. Opening October 16th. And I want to give you some advice, Ricky. Don't mess with Scott. You see, what I really want to do is direct. And Scott's the lead in my next project. So if you mess with Scott, you're messing with me and my Academy Award. And Chucky's going to get more than lucky, Ricky. Chucky's going to get even. <laughs> well, that's insanity. That's lunacy. <laughs> but he also appeared on things like Saturday Night Live's Weekend Update as well. Uh, I don't think it was Brad Dourif doing the voice for that. It was just a Chucky. It doesn't sound like it at all. Sounds like Seth Meyers is who it sounds like. So who would well, be like a baby when that happened? <laughs> yeah. Like. So. But uh, this movie goes on to be a hit. Like, it makes 50 million bucks. It's a pretty moderate hit. I mean, it comes out a couple months after um, Halloween H2O. And I think domestically, at least, it does almost as well as that movie does. So, you know, I think that's the movie that we remember as being the big slasher from that year. But this one's not too far behind it. Um, All right. I I had one question about 
David Kirshner. Do we have any thoughts on him as producer? Uh, Kirshner's been on board from day one as well. Like he's been, you know, he's been like one of the guiding forces for it uh, up to this point. And I don't think he's missed any of the movies aside from the remake. Uh, he's still involved as a producer with the series. So he's kind of like this glue behind the scenes with, with the child's play franchise. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll have the take that like talking about Mancini and talking about Mancini coming into his own on the franchise and actually getting to write, you know, his characters as gay characters and, you know, his experience comes to the screen. He had a producer that let that happen as well. Um, I think you have to really give credit to the fact that like films are not just one person. Um, Obviously we associate Don Mancini with child's play, Chucky, whatever we call the franchise, but there's a lot of people working on those films. And if you have a producer on your side the entire way, that's only going to let like, whatever you're doing be that much easier and put it to the screen in like so, some, such an easier way. Like that's the partnership and the teaming there is kind of like, you know, Sam Raby and Rob Tapper on uh, evil dead in the same way. So it's like when you have a team that just clicks and works and keeps things going and it, like, there's no challenge against what Mancini wants to do with his franchise. Like every film that comes out is basically his brainchild in one way or another. And again they take some pretty massive swings so the fact that you know you have a producer that's letting all this happen there's a producer that lets seed of chucky happen like it is a wild ass sequel that i'm sure you'll get to obviously but like Mm -hmm. the fact that kirshner was like no this is what you want to do we're going to follow your vision we're going to see this through and then let don mancini direct on seed too so like it just seems like he has all all the love in the world for mancini and like all the confidence and when you have that kind of support as a creator, like the sky is the limit. So I I do think there was definitely something to this partnership. And I mean, that even goes as far back as saying like reports on set were that Ronnie, you did not finish filming this film. He left Mm -hmm. halfway through. So like Mm. this was Mancini taking over and us not knowing it on bride of Chucky and finishing as a director. Um, And that's what let him get seed. And that's what like actually gave him a shot of that as well. So like, you know, the fact that, like, Kirshner's letting Mancini step up in every step of the way. It's teamwork. That's yeah. fucking teamwork. You is a fascinating figure, because the reports on the Freddy versus, like, Jason set was, like, he suffered from pretty severe depression, and he was either, like, right on top of everything, or uh, I think, like, Jason Ritter and um, others have talked about, like, having no idea what they were supposed to do because he would be in such a funk that no one could get him out of that. They were kind of left to their own devices. Um, and he kind of just disappears after Freddie versus Jason, despite that movie being like a massive success and literally taking like two decades to get off the ground. Um, you don't really see him follow up with anything that you figure he would have the cachet to do once that movie is so successful. So I did not know that about him being kind of leaving the movie midway through. So that is, uh, that is the, the speak as we say, mm-hmm. the goss, but uh, it does make sense as to say why, like, you know, Hey, why did Mancini just like jump to the director's chair and see, mm-hmm. um, and you know, seems that there was a reason that that is the story that is out there now i wonder what scenes mancini actually directed yeah the difference um, like what, where it goes against i next see now i'm like deeply curious um but i mean no to your point matt i think great art is only able to prosper if the artists are free to do what they need to do and that takes a strong producing partner someone who's able to 
come alongside and go to bat for that person, you know, and historically when you have a great piece of art, you've got someone who's basically kind of laying down to make sure that that happens. Cause when the money starts to be like, Oh, but couldn't we do this and this instead, you need a strong hand to go. No, we can't. This is not the vision. This is not what we're doing. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's, that's a good take on Kirshner. And I think that's a big part of what he brings to this franchise for sure. I find him fascinating because he not only has one foot deeply planted in this franchise, but also in children's entertainment. Like, you know, he produced the Hocus Pocus movie. Uh, he got his start producing the American Tale uh, movies mm-hmm. as well, like those animated classics. He did a lot of the Curious George movies. Uh, he had a big hand in animation over at Warner Brothers when they were, you know, tried and failed to kind of get their animation division off the ground. So he kind of has these two careers. Like one of them is this really successful producer in children's entertainment. And the other one is this really successful producer in like a campy, uh, beloved like campy horror movie franchise. And that's not something you typically see. Not that like producers tend to stay like in one lane and 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 just stick to it but those aren't like i don't think you see a crossover like that typically so just to me i found that kind of interesting all right let's talk what let's talk a bit about this movie and the first thing i want to bring up let's talk about jennifer tilly and uh jessica you mentioned how like watching this movie how like her character really called to you um and i think that a lot of folks feel like that what is it about Tiffany in particular that stands out? I mean, it's it's hard for me to separate Tiffany from Jennifer Tilly because she has such a vibe as like from the moment we're introduced to her, we, we just see the heels and the legs and then it pans up. We've got, you know, living dead girl going like she is just such an iconic figure immediately like she's so badass and she's a little bit deranged but in a fun way like she's got kind of a Marilyn Monroe if she were a serial killer going on which is so appealing like I don't know how you don't love that you know she's got a sense of humor she stands up for herself but she's also kind of got that um Harley Quinn going for the bad boy vibe thing Mm -hmm. I I just I I can't think of anything not to love about Tiffany, like her sense of style, you know, just the decadence of watching Bride of Frankenstein in a bubble bath with the makeup and the hair. There's really nothing that I don't love about Tiffany. Like I that iconic introduction to her and then just everything about her, her humor. And she's got this warmth that draws you in, even though she is terrifying in a way like you, there's something about her that's just, so magnetic i i can't say enough good things about tiffany or about jennifer tilly honestly you mentioned kind of not being able to separate tilly from uh tiffany and part of it is like tilly brought her own wardrobe with her to the set like it's something that she often does you know because she's like such a uniquely proportioned woman a lot of times like costume designers like don't have anything that's going to be tailored for her so she's just like i'll bring my own stuff so you know that dress we see her introduced in uh, i believe like the bustier we see her in uh later on in the boudoir scene like those are all like straight from her closet um 
you need to move that way, Sam. Uh, they are straight from her closet. Like she's just bringing those on set, but they like really um, fit her character of Tiffany, like extremely well. Um, I like, again, I watch this movie and I don't, it, I kind of feel like it should be criminal to be as stunning as Jennifer Tilly is in this movie. Like it's should be illegal to be that beautiful because she's just like, it's impossible to take your eyes off for her. Like every second she's on screen. Um, and like the Tiffany doll is great. Like, don't get me wrong, but I feel like we were robbed of more Jennifer Tilly, uh, by having that change happen at the end of act one. Uh, Steven, your thoughts before I go off on a I weird mean, rant that gets me arrested. I mean, look, Mike, we, we all knew this was going to be the episode you were going to go horny on me. Mm-hmm. So, it's it's fine. We expect that. And and that's OK. You do you, man. Um, but no, I mean, what's what's not to love about Jennifer Tilly? I mean, come on. Um, a formative young crush for for young Steven. Um, absolutely. Like and, and I didn't even see this movie. So, I mean, in terms of what she's doing in this movie, I think she. That, that she took this role at all is kind of incredible, because at this point she's married to Sam Simon. Uh, who is richer than God. And so like, she doesn't need to act unless it's something she wants, mm-hmm. which is why she seldom does anything outside of this franchise anymore. Um, and so, you know, it speaks to just her desire to be a part of this, that she even comes onto this thing at all. Um, and she, she's just having a blast. And that's what I love most about what she's doing in this movie is she's having fun. Like she's just having a really good time and it shows through the entire film, even doing the voice stuff with Duraf, like the two of them have mm-hmm. such great chemistry, even though they're played by inanimate objects. Like they're, they just have, you can tell they're in the same room. You can tell they're riffing off of each other. You can tell they're just having mm-hmm. an a, a, absolute blast. Like I just love everything she does in this movie. And she ends up, I think grounding at least that early part of the movie in that she plays like the femme fatale meets groupie. So very, very well, like just to the hill just plays that. And and so when she gets turned into a doll, it you don't even miss a swing. Like you just you're just along for the ride at that point. And the movie just gets crazier from yeah. there, which is what I love about it. But no, I think Tilly is just fantastic. She's doing great. And I wanna ask, like in the late nineties, like before the internet is everywhere and before, you know, like femdom or S and M culture is everywhere and, and it's more you know, more of a niche back then. How many persons do you think like this was their introduction to any sort of like type of like femdom or S&M type of role play? Like you see when uh, she tells Alexis Arquette, like, all right, get on your knees and crawl to me. Like, that's just not something that you're typically seeing in any sort of like mainstream movie. And, you know, for how many, you know, couples may have turned to one another seeing that in, opening and be like let's let's go home and give that a try let's not since exit to eden you know? mike not since exit to eden four years earlier mm-hmm. had, had had people seen such sites right and it's just and again it's like now that would be almost commonplace you know what i mean i think we every you know that's that kind of culture is kind of crept in but in 1998 it's like definitely not something you're seeing everywhere well, I mean, there's a reason she came after Bound, you know, like Gershon recommends her <laughs> for being in Bound and like she brings exactly that kind of like homicidal homemaker in a way, you know, shout out to Casey there. But like that is what she is doing so well, like the, the squeaky voice, the danger, the seduction, everything about it is like 
all of those tweets on the internet like oh i'd let her kill me like like, she would like that is the that is literally the character that she's playing and she's playing that so well like but not as a meme she's playing it as a character that's fully fleshed through and i think what gets even better about it is like of course we can talk about her beauty over and over again because like same boat like same crush same everything but towards the end of the film is where it gets even better for her performance because not only is she now out of body not only is she is in the plastic form but she starts really turning on her own character and she starts becoming you know the heartbroken jennifer tilly or sorry the heartbroken tiff because jennifer tilly is in seat of chucky and it gets even more confusing but um no the heartbroken tiff at the end when like chucky literally just like kills her and those final parting words of like i should have listened to my mother and all that stuff it just brings home that character in such a tragic way that everything we'd been focused on before that, you know, what she was wearing and how she was like carrying herself and like the squeakier voice and being upbeat and charismatic, it all just kind of fades away and you really get the nuance and the depth that Jennifer Tilly brings to this character of Tiff and you see her in a new light and you're just like, wow. So like over the course of a movie, you had us all con to be this like biker chick Martha Stewart that would kick the shit out of you. And then at the end, it's like you get that just turn of the character and how like that self-doubt comes in and that is just a performance a plus yeah but i think that self-doubt works so well is because she's so good in that first act like when she's in her human form because she makes the conversation she pulls off those conversations with an animatronic doll like it's nothing do you know what i mean like it, it feels like she's just talking to another person there in that room. Like she's able to completely sell it. She's able to completely sell like the ridiculousness of that situation. And she's like still like funny and quick and sharp. Uh, You know, when she has like Chucky underneath the um, underneath, like pinned in the cage, like she's still seductive, even when she's trying to seduce a plastic doll. And like, this might be the only time a podcast ever draws a comparison between like, malik's badlands in bride of chucky but i look at like your typical female accomplice in like a in a crime spree type of movie like you look at badlands and sissy spacek's character is is broken bad basically like she starts out as like an innocent schoolgirl who falls under um you know, who falls under the spell of Charles and is basically dragged along for the ride and through unfortunate circumstances, like ends up siding with him, even like natural born killers with Mickey and Mallory, like Mallory doesn't start bad. Like, you know, even when Mallory is like abused by her dad, played by Ronnie Dangerfield and the shitty home life, you know, it's not until she meets Mickey that she breaks bad at that point and then is you know, more, not just, she's more than an accomplice, but she doesn't start out that way. And I think when you're introduced to Tiffany in this movie, like she's every bit Charles's equal at this point. Like you can tell that they are like drawn to one another because like she is every bit the homicidal maniac that he is like, she gets to be bad and she gets to be bad on her own terms. And I think that's like a really fun way to start the movie more than like, Oh, um she just kind of like happened to fall for the wrong guy and she thought that like she could change him but really she can't yeah it's 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 fun to see someone who's able to step to chucky on his own terms Mm -hmm. and play his game just as well as he does to the extent that she's critiquing his choice of weapons 
Like, oh yeah, you've you've done that before. I don't know. That's a little predictable. Mm-hmm. Hey, look at that. And then we can get a cool digital knives flying or nails flying at the camera effect out of that yep. later. So, you know, like she she meets him on his terms. She she knew him when he was human and killing people. And for all intents and purposes, that's what attracted her to him. And as a result of seeing, I think, the young lovers and and realizing this could have been the road not taken for her she starts to kind of reevaluate who she is and, and takes on that tragic figure. Like I've settled myself with this person. I, I could have had a good guy, um, not just a good guy doll and to kill and the killer trapped inside, but an actual good guy. Um, and, and that's what, what causes her, her tragic turn at the end. Um, brilliantly recapturing the emotion of Bride of Frankenstein and that really incredible, super powerful ending of that, like perfect 1930s horror mm-hmm. film. Like and just kind of updating that for a modern night late nineties audience. I think that's just absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, going toe to toe with Chucky, I, Mike, I get your point completely about wanting to see more of Jin Fertilli and less of the doll, but I don't think enough people give her credit. Like she's known for her voice. It's a very unique voice. It's very seductive mm-hmm. and an unusual voice, but voice acting is an entirely different animal from yeah. acting when you're on screen and not a lot of, like this is a soapbox I get on a lot, like with animated films, if you cast, you know, someone who's not a voice actor, sometimes they don't do as good a job because it's a completely different skill set. But Jennifer Tilly's voice acting is remarkable. Like she holds oh, yeah. her own with Brad Dorf. I mean, you could tell that they were recording together and had this great chemistry, but I don't think she gets enough credit for what a great just voice performance she gives. Because like Matt said, that the tragedy at the end and like as she's realizing her mistakes like the pathos that she lends it and just the journey that she takes you on while she's in the body of this plastic doll. I really don't think she gets her flowers enough for the voice performance. Mm-hmm. If you ever watch no. the uh, what is show on a uh, Disney plus, like the Marvel, what is show mm-hmm. uh, you can see exactly what you're talking about there, Jessica, in the sense that some of those Marvel actors are very phenomenal on screen and uh, they very much look the part and then they go to do voice acting and you're like, Oh, maybe you just stay on screen. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, I think we, what is it, the new Uncharted movie, the gentleman who does like the voice of Nathan Drake, like has a brief cameo uh, in that movie. And I think a lot of fans like want to see kind of like more of him because they who they associate with, with their character. And Stephen, you just mentioned like the knives coming out on screen or uh, actually say like knives are so passe. And that kind of wants me to lead me to talk a little bit about like the meta references that go on in this movie. Because, you know, I think, Matt, you mentioned like people taking the wrong lessons away from Scream. And that's a movie I think I must have rewatched like a dozen times since we've started this podcast. Like that's one of my all time favorite movies. And what I take away from that movie with each rewatch is that it's really not like a meta movie per se, in terms of like, they are just like referencing scene after scene, after scene, all these different movies, but it just happens to be a movie where characters like know that horror movies exist. And that was such a unique thing at the time. Um, what I picked out like a ton of different like little moments in here where you kind of get that those references to horror movies existing, like just at the outset of the movie, you have like the slasher uh, icons, like their stuff appearing, like Freddy's glove and Jason's mask and Michael's mask. And there's even like 
the guy folks from like the puppet master movies you see them and you see the crate from creep show in here but there's just like a ton of like little references that are scattered throughout this movie but what did y'all catch or what stood out to you in terms of like the 90s the 90sness of this movie I mean, you go to Hellraiser, too, because that's what we've just referenced before with Chuck mm-hmm. using the nails and getting inventive. And he creates Pinhead accidentally yep. <laughs> in, in death form. Um, I, I think it's also more references that are whether or not they're dated at this point. But again, like the Martha Stewart stuff um, and, the, you know, her situation at the time with her tax evasion and things of that mm-hmm. nature. Um, like, you know, those are referenced. But I think it still just gets more referential in the way that Scream does about being references about a genre the the wrong takeaway that i often see in a lot of films is exactly what you just said mike the sense that a filmmaker will be like oh well to be meta we just need to recreate these famous scenes and show you pictures of people you you know and horror icons you know and that's funny and no that's not funny that's just going through history and showing us what we already know what's funny is a movie like scream that actually takes the time to write it into their story it actually takes the time to comment on the genre as a whole. And it's commenting on how these films work because that's, what's funny when you start making, not even making fun of because scream is so in, in love with the horror genre. But when you start making your commentary and your menace about the movie, you're kind of making in a way that is when horror comedy is at its best. So like, that's what I take away from Brian Chuck. I think it's very good at doing meta in the way that, well, it's making a movie about that is a sequel and it's obviously referencing um, Bride of Frankenstein. It's doing all things with the romantic comedies because you start looking at the romantic comedy sequences and the lovemaking scene and things of that nature. Like it's having fun with romantic comedies just as much as it is a slasher. Mm-hmm. Movie. So that's my madness. Like that's what I walk away with just absolutely adoring about it because like it is our natural born killers. It is our weird romantic comedy that we never knew we needed. It is all of those wrapped in one freaked up you know can i curse sorry i forgot if i'm cursing oh yeah you could totally curse on this yeah show. in one fucked up package like like that is brian chucky look we're talking snm and femdom shit and you know we're talking like i don't even think we you can say whatever you damn well want you know we are an r-rated show it is okay um yeah, and just like, you know, little things that aren't necessarily horror related, but little nods to the previous movies like Jennifer Tilly watching like um, Murder, She Wrote in her bathtub, uh, which a God, that sounds like heaven. Like that has become my wife and I's kind of comfort show to watch together when we're relaxing at night. And it's just so pleasant. Um but a number of performers uh, guest starred on Murder, She Wrote, like from the first three Child's Play movies. So seeing something like that, it's like a cute little nod, but you don't necessarily have to be like an uber fan in order for that to like strike you as clever. Um, little things when Chucky is playing with like the speak and spell and spelling out bitch. Uh, I'm like, oh, that's Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw 3 spelling out food over and over again. And that that works for me in such a good way. And I do like the like, oh, the knives are so passe and that that whole again, like late 90s horror, like the slasher movies from this period, they are not as well regarded as the golden age of slashers in the 80s. And I think there's a good reason for that. But these are in Jessica, you referenced this like they were your teen years. This would have been like my early 20s. Like these are like pure comfort food. Like this is like fried chicken biscuits and gravy heaped on mashed potatoes but in a movie form as far as i'm concerned 
and now I'm hungry. I was gonna say that was oddly specific. Are you hungry? <laughs> I just ate and now I'm yeah. hungry again. But I mean, that what's more of a comfort food than like fried chicken and gravy and mashed potatoes? Like mm-hmm. it doesn't get any. Maybe throw some like waffles on it. Oh god, now I'm really hungry. All right. I don't think we can talk about this movie without talking about queer representation um, because this is where it goes from being implicit. You know, you see a moment in Child's Play 3 where one of the characters um, puts like lipstick on Chucky and then you get to like, oh, this is war. Like, how dare you feminize me? Um, This Child's Play thing. Um, But you get like very explicit queerness and queer references uh in throughout this movie and who would like to start by you know as the cis dude amongst the bunch or one of the cis dudes among amongst a bunch maybe i'm not the best place to start but i mean we don't have a good place to start i think okay <laughs> like, I, I i think this is just an open conversation we that was as just... awkward of a transition as i could possibly make but sure it was yeah. so i'll just dive right in and try to take the bullet on that one <laughs> um but no it's the sense that um, I, I'm really bummed because I did a 20th anniversary piece of Ride of Chucky for Sci-Fi mm-hmm. Wire, and I just tried to look it up because he talked. To, uh, I talked to Don Mancini about this, and he talked about finally being allowed to write from a place that he wants to write, and specifically writing, you know, his first gay character into a movie. Like we have an openly gay character, and you know, do, is he the sidekick of sorts? Does he die? Like, yes, he does fit those tropes. But this was the first time that, like, you know, Mancini was kind of allowed in a way to write a character that he felt more connected with. And you can see that in that character because, like, immediately he is the character who is the plant, you know, prom date to be like, oh, yeah, no, I'm going with your daughter. Don't worry about it. And, like, that's okay. But then immediately, like, you know, that is just, like, the first trick in a way. And, like, mm-hmm. is it playing still in a in a 90s world where, like, a lot of slashers are not okay with doing this. Uh, yeah. But is it also taking a first huge step? And again, like allowing Mancini to do exactly what he starts to want to do and like what he's always wanted to do. But unfortunately, Hollywood, you know, kind of wouldn't let him because then he couldn't keep writing. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it's actually a huge deal. And it was a huge deal to him because, again, the fucking quote was there. You know, I don't know why they took the article down. But like, yes, that was that was important. Yeah. But you get some of the gay panic from the late nineties where like David's character, when he's first introduced, like they poke a little bit fun, like, Oh, you're going to like university uh, on an athletic scholarship. Right. He's like, well, yeah, figure skating, you know, like being the joke that like all gay, you know, gay men love figure skating or all male figure skaters are queer. Uh, And then it goes like one notch further where he starts describing like these floral traits and the smells and where they come from. And you have John Ritter's character just staring daggers at him. Like what's going on here? Um, And even like Ritter in that role is kind of funny because, you know, his, his like breakout role as a performer was his, you know, Jack, in three's company where he had to masquerade as a gay man in order to live uh, as he had to pretend to be gay as a heterosexual man in order to live with like two gorgeous women, because apparently 1970s apartment culture had to be run like a college dorm. I don't quite know how that worked, but I liked that show growing up and hijinks would ensue in a weekly basis with Don Knotts. So that's cool. 
Um, but I can't think like, is this probably like one of the first out queer characters handled with any sort of grace in any slasher movie to this point? Yeah, I think he tr- I, he's definitely the sidekick. He does die like he, he is the barrier gaze trope. But I think in a way he transcends the sidekick role very deliberately because he is the only one who kind of cuts through this kind of threes company thing where you know Catherine Heigl thinks Jesse Jesse and Jade they both think the other one is the killer Jesse thinks Jade's the murderer Jade thinks Jesse's the murderer and then David shows up to cut through it all and cut through the bullshit and say clearly neither one of you is the killer if you both think the other one is the killer he shows up kind of later in the film than you might expect for just the gay sidekick he could have just been the in other people's hands, he could have been the comic relief with the figure skating and knowing about orchids and then disappeared. But he shows up again to kind of save the day. But the, something about the humor is very 90s to me because immediately after he cuts through the misunderstanding, he finds John Ryder's body and immediately jumps back to, oh, wait, no, you're, you're both murderers. I'm going to get the hell out mm-hmm. of here. So to me, like even though his method of escape is to get run over by a truck, he's still the smartest character in the film by far because he's the only one who can see through everything and then gets the heck out of Dodge as soon as he realizes, wait, there's a body here. And, you know, speaking of John Ritter, drawing parallels between the film and two out gay filmmakers, James Whale and, um, excuse me, Clive Barker, you know, obviously that's drawing in, on a legacy of queer film and saying, you know, horror is very queer. Look at all this that I'm drawing on. Look at this Bride of Frankenstein that we're paying homage to. Look at the Clive Barker character we're paying tribute to. To me, that's this film saying, you know, I am a movie in a long line of queer filmmakers Mm -hmm. and queer horror. So I think that's a very strong statement there. And it's going to go even further in the next movie with Seed of Chucky, where you have like a uh, openly non-binary character. Um, And it continues in uh, modern times with the show Chucky, where you have like these, you know, various like pansexual relationships and queer relationships that, you know, go out throughout the show and they're not played. They're played as I say they're played as straight, um, but they're, you know, they're just played as like, no, this is like a natural evolution of, of couple dumb. Like it's, there's no shock value to it. There's nothing like, Oh, it's a character coming out. It's just like, that's how they're presented. And I think that's kind of really wonderful. And I think that, you know, I think that you see in Matt, maybe you can speak to it because you've like spoken with Mancini and interviewed him, but like a growing level of comfort in being out, um, translates to like rather than like burying the queerness in the first few movies with some implicit references to putting it front and center to being like the focal point is just again being comfort more comfortable in your own body and your own skin yeah i think it's just that comfort though it's just what you said you know imagine just having to write these movies as what the studio wants versus wanting to write them as you want to um and, and it seems like such a simple thing to make happen but Mm -hmm. we all know how hollywood works we all know how these jobs get doled out and uh especially again we're talking about the 90s and you know it wasn't easy for don mancini to kind of like get through that stuff where he was making Mm -hmm. his movies but he was still writing them from a place that was kind of a box still so when he was finally finally let out and finally like allowed to start writing his his uh his character the way that he wants to and the characters around him as he wants to 
that's when everything changed for him again like it, just the creative freedom is what he was allowed to feel and do like that was like his first real movie in a way you know like that was his first time to actually say like oh no like this is don mancini writing it and like that name actually meant something versus just a pen name until then so mm-hmm. I, I think that's that's just the biggest thing for any one of us you know if we had to hide something uh, just yeah. to keep a job or something of that nature like no nah, no thanks Absolutely. You, you feel that in the movie, too. Like as Mancini comes into his own, so does this franchise. And and I think the more ownership Mancini is able to take of it, uh, the, the truer it gets to. I don't know, the more it feels like itself. Um, and I'm sure there's there's something there's something in there. Right. Like there there's something within that that analogy like it. It, it it's just incredible to me that as Mancini kind of comes to terms with this and is able to be more himself, this franchise gets campier and more queer and starts to resonate in a completely different way. And yeah, you still have the purists who are like, no, the original is better. But I don't know, for me, like it's the back half of the franchise that's that I'm having the most fun with. It's It's the back half of the franchise that I really dig. And I think, and again, I'm a notorious. So I think it is because Mancini finally gets to take the wheel and do his own thing. And I, I don't know. I appreciate that as, as someone who loves film, it's always great to see an artist have the freedom to do what they love to do and to make the art they want to make. And for Mancini to get to do that and for Chucky to be that outlet. I don't know. I think that's great. Let me look at all the other franchises, like look at all the other directors that have played around in sandboxes. And again, like using Friday the 13th in a way years and years we have, seen friday the 13th live and thrive based on just well what can we throw against the wall and some are successful some aren't some as i said go to space some go to hell like they go everywhere like these this whole franchise does whatever it wants but i'm left loving child's play as the best franchise of the slashers because of exactly what you just said like this has been mancini's creation and there has been one singular through line this entire time and you can keep seeing it even in the earlier films where it was actually funny mike like at the beginning of this you said that uh bride of chucky is like the fan favorite of the franchise but actually like <laughs> i was playing mixtape Mas- massacre with christina Elise mccarthy and i was wearing my bride of chucky shirt and she's like oh like it's funny you're wearing a bride of chucky shirt like you know and i laughed i'm like oh yeah it's my favorite of the franchise and then like obviously i have kyle looking right back at me saying like oh like everyone always tells me like child's play 2 is the favorite but that actually is like most of the actual lists and stuff like all my you know whoever writes lists that i read um and child's play 2 is like always on top which is always interesting to me because i think i kind of agree too with what was said on the podcast that like it gets the most interesting once bride of chucky happens And the fact that it's been a consistent through line and the fact that it's been Mancini's the entire time, like that is the reason we are 40 year plus into this franchise or whatever. Like, you know, however long this franchise has been going on, like there's a reason he has sustained so many years. And there's a reason that this entire franchise has been running for so long. And that's because it's been a singular vision. Like there is there is nothing more valuable than one single person taking this through the entire way, because how, how often do we get sick of sequels that like, it's just a not another hired gun. We just have to keep the pop, uh, the property going because we're going to lose the rights. We're just going to do this. We're just going to do that. I'm not a fan of the remake. And like, that is not only because I am such a devout, like child's play fan. I also mm-hmm. think it's just not a great movie, but like that movie is lacking something 
and like its soul in a way like i i know they're using ai so of course it can't have any like voodoo and like soul in the actual doll but like the film itself is lacking soul it just feels like a slasher none of the you know maybe one or two of the earlier films feel like that but i don't know for me like it just doesn't get better than one filmmaker seeing his product the entire way i love the remake i'll be honest with you i i love the remake um and I think that the AI develops soul and pathos throughout that movie. Oh, I really, I, I really do love it. It's interesting you mentioned Child's Play 2 and how that's like the fan favorite because we just recorded on that a couple weeks ago. And I think all of us were like, why doesn't Child's Play 2 get the sort of like part two love that like a Halloween 2 or uh, a Friday the 13th part two gets. Cause like, those are the two that jump out even like Freddie's revenge at this point, I think is like spun back around to where people realize like how brilliant a movie. I mean, we want to talk queer horror and you know, we could be here all month. Um, but like, we're talking about part twos that get a lot of love. Um, I never hear child's play two referenced. I am hanging with the wrong people is what's going on here. I thought it was universal. That's clearly what it is. Sorry, I was going to say, like, I just thought it was universal because, like, everyone I talk to is, like, I I think I have three examples of my favorite, like, part one, part twos where the part two is better. Mm -hmm. And, like, it's wreck, it's child's play. Um, And there's, like, one more that I'm obviously blanking on. But, like, it's just, it's very interesting because I've always heard, like, and agreed with that two is better than one. I... Yeah, and I think like I slightly prefer part one, but I think just it's the original. But I think part two builds on part one in really interesting ways and makes everything. The finale in particular is just incredible. But like the first three Child's Play movies essentially tell the same story, just in three different locales. I mean, for all intents and purposes, mm-hmm. like it's like a repurposing of the same story beats. Just you're moving where it's where it's happening. Um, but this is like such a 180 in terms of its direction, in terms of its tone, in terms of its focus, like it, it's just such its own animal. Um, and speaking of like tone and focus, we need to talk about puppet sex because I think that is what everybody takes from this movie. Um, I'm not going to ask because I don't know any of you well enough yet to ask what's the weirdest thing you've ever had sex with we can leave that until next year we know each other better um that question will come once you've guessed it a dozen or so times i will say like i keep it pg-13 here um mostly because of who i've co-hosted with and then also doing the other show with jen and lara jen and lara jen in particular it's one of the filthiest people i've ever met like she is the bob saget of podcasting and that you wouldn't know how dirty she actually is, um, you know, until she lets her freak flag fly. I'll probably cut this all out. Um, I'm just reminded, Mike, of the first time that you guessed it on Disenfranchised. And the very first thing you said after like, hey, it's great to be here is, I don't know, maybe anal. Yeah. So what are you doing for I mean, Valentine's Day? Yeah, I asked you, what are you doing for Valentine's Day? And you're like, I don't know, maybe anal. And I was just like, all right, okay. Didn't say it was pitching or catching. You know, we could go either way. You know, it's Valentine's hey, Day. No, Everything's you up were, in the air. You were unclear. So, Romance is in the air. Anything up, can happen. So. Um, I, I don't know. Before I get too deep on puppet sex, I let's do want to. Um, let's come on. We got to okay, be serious. Let's, 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 we got to be serious here. Let's talk about right, puppet. Right. We got to talk about puppets fucking. No, deep, you're right. Deep and, fucking. <laughs> hard and deep. Fast. <laughs> Take it, Stephen. Keep a straight face. Um, 
plastic rubber wood. Mm-hmm. I um <clears throat> no, I the thing that always gets me about this movie is that by the time Team America World Police came around and there was so much conversation about, oh my word, there's like a full sex scene with like puppets. It's so incredible. And I think I remember someone in college, because I was in college when that movie came out, someone in college said, yeah, but didn't Bride of Chucky do that like six years ago? And then I think someone else, and it might have been me, I honestly don't remember, said, yeah, but who remembers Bride of Chucky? And at this point, who remembers Team America right. World Police outside of the big effing deal they made about the fucking puppet mm-hmm. sex? I mean, it and and I think Chucky does it way better, if I'm being really honest, um, like it in, in every sense, really. So I, I don't know. Puppets having sex. What's not to love? Oh, and I mean, Meet the Feebles did it before that, mm-hmm. too. So. I mean, if if we want to get really deep into puppet sex, mm-hmm. why am I the expert on puppet sex? I'm going to shut up. Fun story. My ex-roommate and I met up at a movie one night, and he we were like, how are things going? He's like, I watched the weirdest porn today. I'm like, was it Let My Puppets Come? And he's like, yes, it was. And it was just so weird that we both owned that porno puppet movie, Let My Puppets Come. Owned, not had seen, owned, owned. It and had watched it. Both of us had watched it that day. Independently of one another. Yes. So, I mean, like, if we're talking about Team America, though, I think the difference between <laughs> Pride of Chucky and Team America, without stating the obvious, is Team America played it for laughs, and Team yeah. America is right. going over the top in a gratuitous way that is showing multiple positions, and, like, mm-hmm. there is what they are doing with the puppets is un, un, un- it's not okay. <laughs> like, it's not okay. How but, how like, do you feel Bride of Chucky played it for, like, erotic thrills? Like, is that... No, like, an actual relationship. Clearly. Like, legitimately, they were playing this in a way that, like, they, you don't see anything. Like, literally, mm-hmm. all you see is, like, basically them just, like, the pre. And mm-hmm. just, like, kind of, like, the shot down the back. And it's, again, it's very funnily playing off of romantic comedies. and like, mm-hmm. and, like Or, like, romantic dramas. Or, like, a Hallmark story. And, like, the way a love scene is always in the start. And, and like, the cheesy lines and the, like, you know plastic wood of course or sorry rubber wood whatever it is mm-hmm. like baby i made a rubber it's like, yeah like do you have protection term. yeah but like again it's it's played in a way that is still oddly sweet and that is why yeah. it works it works because you have two characters with tremendous chemistry voicing puppets mm-hmm. and it is still oddly sweet in this very eccentric scenario and my understanding is like there were not supposed to be any noises from the two of them during that like it was just going to be the music and brad Duraf and Jennifer Tilly were like, no, we have to make animalistic lovemaking noises. We do this. And that is part of God what makes them. it. Apparently they were also going to record like an album, an album of like love ballads, like in character is Tiffany and Chucky. Um, we were robbed. We could have had it all. I, we really could. The nineties, man, we're really a time where like anything, anything could have happened. So Jessica, you look horrified. I'm going to be really no, honest. I'm not I want to like know what very... thoughts Jessica has on Plasma. No, on I've been yeah. enjoying like... this immensely. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> That was one of my favorite moments. Do you have a rubber? Baby, I made a rubber. Like, mm-hmm. And the fact that that's not just a throwaway joke, that that sets up the rest of you know mm-hmm. the next movie is just brilliant because you don't expect that to be anything other than, a, oh, they made a rubber joke. But no, I'm all about the puppet sex. I have not seen Team America World Police, but I'm a fan of the sweet sexy hilarious erotic puppy set puppet puppy sex good god puppet sex in bride of chucky so no i'm not horrified i've just been enjoying (laughs) Mm -hmm. excellent 
So, all right. I, I do want to make mention of one more thing. Like Catherine Hegel, who plays Jade in this movie, it's weird because I think we best know her from things like Grey's Anatomy and any number of like romantic comedies. Um, and also like from tabloids, like there was a period where she was like one of the probably most well-known or highest paid performers in the world. And the rap on her has always been like very difficult to work with. Uh, and Mancini has actually said this like a number of times said like, and he's been tried to couch it by saying it was very obvious even back then that she was going to go on to have like a great career, but like she butted heads with like the production team a lot while on set. And there's like an interview that quote unquote Chucky did before the release of this movie on Blu-ray and it's Mancini writing the answers where, you know, he's like, well, it's like one person you uh, wish you could kill. And it was like Catherine Hegel. This was the answer, the one that got away. And it's like, what's the scariest movie you've ever seen? And the answer that Mancini gave, like really catty answer was like 27 Dresses, which is a Catherine Hegel romantic comedy. Like, so there is no love lost there. But what's funny is like, she has like a sneaky, good scream queen career. She is in the, you know, she does like five seasons of the show Roswell for the WB, which was like the um, sci-fi version of Buffy, basically. Um, so she does like 60 shows of that or three seasons, however many along it ran, ran like, but she did like five. I'm saying five seasons because now a show is like 13 episodes, but it ran for three years. She did 60, 60 shows. She's in Valentine, like she's the opening kill in the movie Valentine. She does Bride of Chucky. So she has like a she does in a Twilight Zone episode. She does like a sneaky amount of like horror things very early in her career before transitioning over to like romantic comedies. I don't foresee her ever. I think um God, one of Mancini's lines is like, well, like we didn't kill Catherine Hegel, uh, Catherine Hegel in the movie, but uh, she kind of did it herself in her career. So good job to her, like really snarky, like and as someone who appreciates good snark, like that is an A plus level. So I don't know. She well, just I mean, got pinned with that. And like horror, though, isn't easy in for a lot of people. And that's not mm -hmm. to say that like the job is easy. Like, of course, it's not like every job is like complicated and hard. But I think a lot of people do see horror as like a gateway introduction in a way, um, because horror films, especially like independent horror and more lower budget horror, you know, you can get cast in that if you want to, if you want to go for it. And like I, I have uh, I interviewed Haley Bennett and uh who is in a bunch of horror, indie horror as well that like i had seen and like reviewed and so like i was really excited to talk to her about her horror career first because it was for like i think like her big like mainstream first big breakout was the girl on the train and it was for that junket and um like i like i just had the worst position i was the last interview of the day like she had just done an entire day of junket interviews getting asked probably the worst questions and so like i opened it up to be like hey like you know i'm, I'm really interested to talk about like your horror career for a little bit so like you know can you talk about just like starting on indie horror and like now how you've like elevated to like mainstream blockbusters and like the the answer and blankness i got of just like we're not talking about my horror career i was like oh okay you're done you're done with this you don't want to mm -hmm. go back to it so like i think definitely there's a lot of actors and you know like who went through horror early and uh maybe we can bring like jane levy in the conversation as well and who went through these horror films and were put through the ringer 
and uh, have no desire to go back to it. And so yeah. it's like, I think that's definitely uh, for some reason. So like, whether it's on both sides, obviously, like we don't know case by case, but like, I, I think that's definitely a trend that's possible. I mean, Jane Levy in the Evil Dead remake must have been like as stiff as a board after every day. She's like all the caro and just sticky blood that's on her. Like, I can only imagine the discomfort that one would have to be in. And that's not coming out after one shower. Do you know what I mean? Like, that is a kind of like you're going to have red shit on you for like days afterwards. So well, it's her, it's her commentary too on when uh, somebody asked Fede Alvarez why she wasn't asked back for uh, or, uh, don't breathe too. And his answer was along the lines of like, Oh, you know, we knew Jane had way too much stuff going on. We didn't want to bother her and bring her back. So she took to Twitter and was like, uh, maybe if you treated your actors and actresses, right. Oh, I might have come mm. back for a second, but you didn't even ask me and I wouldn't have, if you did like, excellent that's, that's some telling shit yeah good for her good for her yeah there is a a, a deleted scene or a, an outtake or something on the evil dead dvd where she's like like freaking out full-on freaking out for like five minutes and then eventually she just stops and turns to the camera and goes can i be done or like can i stop now like that does not speak of a healthy filming mm-hmm. environment to me and you know because you're low budget you you feel like you can ask more out of your actors and actresses. And because they're not known because they're nobody, you can push them a little further and they're no. still human beings. Like, yeah, that was, a, it was a day in the life featurette where the camera followed her through a whole day of shooting and that's uh, it. Yeah. Watching it after that tweet and that exchange. Um, definitely. I watched Just it again. Telling. I, it's, it is those little moments where she does turn to the camera and it's like, I, can I be done? And like stuff like that. You're like, yeah, that hits, hits a little different. Hmm. That is, yep, that is definitely telling. That is definitely a, yeah. All right, what are our final, do we have anything that we've missed here? Anything that I, you guys wanted to cover that I may have missed? Well, I don't know. Jess said something earlier about, about David uh, getting the hell out of Dodge. And I was like, yeah, he got the hell out of Dodge and then got hit by a Dodge. Two hey. years before, two years before Sitting Final Destination. 30, 40 minutes? <laughs> I have been sitting on that for a while. I Well, here's the thing. She transitioned into this like great point about the legacy of queer horror. And I'm like, well, I can't jump in now. Like that's now. brilliant. Like I, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna save that. And then if, if, the, if it comes back around, I'm going to, I'm going to jump in with it. So there it is. There's, there's that pun I've been sitting on guys. Excellent. Well, thank you, Steven. Maybe we'll even cut that into, <laughs> maybe we'll cut that right in through the magic of editing. If I'm feeling particularly, frisky let's see what happens all right what are our final thoughts on bride of chucky and and its legacy it's perfect it's a perfect film it is an amazing film that should forever be cherished uh but i think its legacy is uh pretty ingrained in pop culture by this point because you can't go into a spencer's gift without uh tiff and chucky like like they are synonymous now with each other it's not just child's play it's the Chucky franchise and Tiff is just as big a part of it. I mean, you talk about the later films as all of y'all have so far and the big standout moments or when Tiff shows back up and when the doll shows back up, it's like everyone calls back to those moments in a franchise and movie titled curse of Chucky or cult of Chucky, you know, like the ones that she is in, we're all talking about Tiff and we're all talking about the introductions and we're all talking about how she has basically like, 
she took a slasher franchise like from the grave like it could have been dead on arrival like if bride of chucky didn't work and it wasn't bride of chucky it was just another slasher iteration of child's play that franchise had no more legs like that was it it was done Mm -hmm. dead in the water um so the introduction of tiffany into not only the franchise but popular culture and how that has sustained i think that's enough of the legacy itself and then just talk about again the fact that mansani has been able to continue creating child's play movies over and over again and and a tv show and do all these different things with chucky and child's play like there is a reason again after decades why this franchise still has all the momentum in the world and people cherish it and love it and that's because the people creating it also cherish and love it this has never been a bullshit franchise like this has never ever copped out on a single film and even the worst film seed of chucky to me like I've watched it multiple times at this point, again, multiple rewatches, and maybe the first time I didn't like it, but like I've come around on that film so hard and what it's doing and what it's representing, especially in that time frame as well. I feel like the entire Child's Play like, series has been just ahead of every other slasher franchise. So, legacy, there, boom. I have tattoos on my arm. This one Let's is see. the Child's Play 2 um, like little handle on a pizza cutter. And then again, I just needed a Child's Play tattoo. And that, like that again is for a reason. So it's legacy is on my bicep. Excellent. Jessica, how about yourself? I think like we were talking earlier about Mancini and about Kirshner kind of shepherding this franchise. When you allow a creator to get as weird and wild as they want, when you allow horror to be as queer as it needs to be, that is when it really shines. That's to me, this is the turning point in the franchise. And that is what it proves to me as we've seen with, you know, subsequent sequels with the TV show, the queerer horror gets the weirder horror gets, the better it gets. Uh, I just, I don't know. I, I can't say it better than you guys did. So I'll just say something. I'm, I've, I've got a lot of thoughts right now, just swimming in my head, just um, the Midwesternness of the early days of the child's play franchise and, kind of the Midwesternness of certain slashers, me being a Midwestern boy that, that kind of resonate resonated with me, like seeing Freddie's glove and Michael Myers's mask and, and, and Chucky. I'm like, well, this, there's something about the Midwestern slasher that I kind of want to dissect and, 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 and dig into a little bit. Um, just the, the notion of uh, just the, 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 the way that this becomes an auteur driven franchise at the end of this or by this, film and, and Mancini kind of stepping up and, and making it its own. Like there, there are so many thoughts swimming around in my head, Chucky's place in the pantheon of slashers. Um, I think a big part of the reason child's play two doesn't get the love and appreciation is because I don't think Chucky really gets his due as one of the preeminent slashers of the eighties. Uh, it's, it's all Freddie and Jason and Michael Myers and Leatherface, but where's the love for Chucky? I think I'll, the fact that it's so comedic i think kind of betrays some of that um i don't know there's a lot of thoughts but in terms of bride of chucky the thing that i that i love so much about it is just the the singleness of the vision and how that becomes the dominant voice in the franchise this is the pivot point this is the point where chucky comes into his own because mancini's allowed to come into his own um like i said i can't say it better than anyone else here already has but this one is is my favorite as as a, as a lover of auteur cinema as a lover of horror comedy the wackier the better in terms of horror comedy too by the way one of my favorite films is gremlins 2 so so you know when i say i love it wacky you know what i mean like that's this is this is and i'm a theater kid so this is all extremely my shit like i absolutely love this i love this movie and the back half of this franchise that's 
that's home. Like that's really good stuff. Yeah. Um, I think everyone said it really well and I don't have much to add in terms of like, not just like the wackiness of it um, and getting weird and lovely, but like just the attention to like narrative detail that it's woven throughout the series. And you're seeing that play out now in like the Chucky television show. Um, there is so much more going on in this franchise and just, Oh, Chucky is a killer doll and he's kind of funny. They bring, and you see, because you have Mancini uh, and Kirshner is like shepherding this series all the way through much like, um, Oh my God, I, I can't do this. I can never do names. Fucking phantasm. Just like Don Cascarelli. Coscarelli. Thank you. Just like Don Coscarelli in Phantasm, like shepherding every movie through, you have like one or two people that are really shepherding it. And you're getting to tie in things from the first movie all the way through the television show. And I think that's when it really pays off for fans. I think that's when really enjoying it 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 really you you get a lot more from it than just like a fun and entertaining movie so all right so that is our work on bride of chucky uh i'm looking forward to talk tackling the back end of this franchise now but before we sign off for the night let's let listeners know where we can find more of everybody's work matt tell us about certified forgotten and what you have coming up there Sure thing. Certified Forgotten is a podcast and website, as Mike said before, that is dedicated to, well, the podcast is dedicated to films that are 10 critic reviews or less in the horror genre. We just want to shine a light on those movies that might have fallen through the cracks. And for those real diehards who stick to the tomato meter, uh, we want to show you why it's bullshit. So uh, that's the podcast and the website. We just want to pay writers to write about the weird shit they want to write about in the simplest terms. So six articles a month, 75 bucks per pop. We're dedicated. Our Patreon goes completely to the writers and we don't take a single dime. So that is if you would like to support good writers in the genre who are giving us the weirdest and wildest takes like Jessica. So <laughs> Jessica's been there. Jessica knows. So hopefully only has good things to say. But uh, yeah, at Donato Bomb. Otherwise, Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram. You'll see all my mm-hmm. writing. I'll post all my weird shit. I'll talk about Demon Wind and Bride of Chucky. That's where it is. Excellent. Jessica, you always have like... Your irons are in 700 different fires, <laughs> basically. You don't sleep. You don't eat. You don't just write, basically. God, I you wish. write and you podcast and you cosplay. And that's it. Um, but what are you working on right now? What do you got coming up? Um, right now, first of all, to Matt's point, yes, Certified Forgotten is where it's at. They let me go long on Terrorvision, which is one of my true cinema loves. And I appreciate them very much for that. Um, but yeah, uh, you can find me on Twitter at We Who Walk Here. I've got a piece coming out tomorrow. So it'll be out by the time this podcast is out about female slashers and the masks they wear and how they differ from their male counterparts in the genre. I'm super excited about that. Um, I've always got pieces coming out from, you know, film cred on my own site daily grindhouse dread central um but yeah you can find me on twitter at we who walk here and i'm always posting cosplay photos links to my articles and links to the mini podcasts i am on excellent steven what's going on with disenfranchised uh well speaking of the many podcasts that jessica's on we we just had her on to talk about the david fincher movie seven Um, so if you don't know, disenfranchised, we're a a podcast that takes a look at movies that were supposed to start franchises, but didn't, 
why were we talking about seven? You've obviously never heard about eight. Um, check out that episode. Jess is great and and incredibly insightful as always. Um, and then we've got the, the Batman movie out. We've got our Catwoman episode. Uh, and we've got some really cool, some other really cool stuff coming in March. Some really fun guests. Um, Mike was on recently to talk about the the second, uh, or I guess the, the remake of uh, My Bloody Valentine. His second time talking about My Bloody Valentine. His second time talking about a 2009 horror remake. Because he also talked with us about Friday the 13th. So um, I don't know. We have a lot of fun. We try to have guests on. Uh, my buddy Brett and I are just like a couple guys who like talking about movies. So I don't know if you got a, a spare hour, check out an episode. Uh, you'll have fun, I think. So where can we find you online? Oh, uh, I'm on uh, Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram at Chewy Walrus. Excellent. That's Chewy Walrus. Chewy like the granola bar, mm-hmm. walrus like the tusked mammal. Excellent. I always thought Chewbacca. That wasn't what I was going for. I was actually going for, you know, like chewy, like the like the consistency. I don't know what it means. Don't ask me what it means. I can't I can't tell you. I can't explain it. I was gonna ask you, but chew have you ever like you chewing walruses? Eat, yeah. Have you ever eaten walrus meat and is it chewy? I would imagine it would be. I mean, they're mostly blubber, yeah. right? So I would imagine it would but be. Walruses but walruses will I, also fuck you up where you can't get. Oh, hell yeah. No, you're not going to get close because they've got those tusks, yeah. man. They will they will impale you seven ways to Sunday. Will you cover tusk at one point? Uh, Brett and I actually had literally had this conversation yesterday um, because it is part of it was part of what was supposed to be Kevin Smith's Great White North trilogy. And Yoga Hosers does follow it up and borrow several characters from Ooh. that film. I think we voted no on that one. But he and I legitimately did have that yeah. conversation yesterday as of the day of no. this recording. So I'm the guy that walked out of the press screening for Tusk at Fantastic Fest in 2014 going, I liked it. And like, I think everybody looked at me like, fuck You're off, dude. <laughs> I gave it four stars. I gave it four stars out of, out of that Fantastic Fest. Fuck I it. enjoyed I it. Movie. I love that movie. It's I fun, dude. Fuck, man. Here's like, the thing I think ruins that movie. I think any emotional weight that movie has is completely ruined by the fact that they have like that stoned conversation that led to the movie play and credits. I'm like, you just shot yourselves in the foot, guys. Why did you do that? Because it's Kevin Smith and Kevin Smith at a certain point just said, I get to do what I want when I want to do it and I get to have fun. And that's all I care about. And you know what? There are worse ways to go through life yeah i mean i blame seth rogan for actually introducing him to weed but there i don't know that that's probably unfair that might be unfair um speaking of of katherine hegel seth rogan and the judd the indie auteur judd apatow with top dub that's right another another person she yes. has a, a notoriously yes. difficult history with oh yeah all right Folks, you can find me and my other show, Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, where we explore horror through the lens of mental health and wellness. Uh, In March, our topic is going to be workplace anxiety. And I'm not kidding. We just recorded like a banger of an episode. We just did Session 9. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. It's an episode I'm really proud of. That will be up shortly. I think by the time this posts, by Thursday, you'll be able to hear that. You can follow me over on Twitter at Mike underscore Snoonian uh, and Letterboxd over on Mike Chump Change. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed this week's show. 
If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. Like real talk, like if you drop us a five-star review and a few kind sentences, for whatever reason, it helps us in the algorithm and it allows new listeners to find us. It allows our show to keep growing. You can also check out our website uh, over at podandpendulum.com. Uh, which is a really easy spot to go through our archives and go through almost 140 back episodes at this point. Follow us over on Twitter at Pod and Pendulum and help spread the good word. Uh, and actually, we'll be back soon with Seed of Chucky, but also in March. Uh, Jessica, you and I are doing a bonus show, aren't we? We are. I'm very excited about it. Yeah. So do you want to describe what your half of that bonus show is going to be? I would love to. My half is going to be Jawbreaker, the 1999 Darren Stein movie um, with some another iconic oh, semi horror villainous, in my opinion, mm-hmm. a movie I'm obsessed with. So I'm very yeah. excited. My half is going to be talking about the seminal 90s emo band Jawbreaker. Uh, My all-time favorite band, a band I'm flying across the country to go see. They're playing their 25th anniversary of the uh, album Dear You, even though it's 27 years old. COVID don't count. Um, I'm going to see them with the Descendants, Sam I Am, and Face to Face. And they will play a bunch of shit. I will weep like a baby, and then I will... um, Get in, I will just fucking dance like crazy. I love this band so much. I'm so excited to talk about them on a show. Uh, and then I'll see them a couple weeks later in Boston with the Lemonheads playing all of It's a Shame About Ray. Oh, it's going to be a good, good night. My half of that episode is going to be on that giant uh, candy that that is that you have to just like suck on for hours called the Jawbreaker. So excited to talk. I, 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 It's probably the episode I'm most looking forward to. And we usually the bonus shows for like 30, 45 minutes. I don't think that's going to be the case here. I think this will be, you know, strap in, folks, strap in, strap on. It's going to be a fucking major, major show. So I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on Jawbreaker. I have not watched Jawbreaker, the movie, in probably 20 years. So I have to rewatch it. And I'm looking forward to it because I remember liking it. Yeah, so, I very... want to hear your love for it. Oh, absolutely! You'll hear all about it. So that well, that'll be a massive show. But I'm interested Excellent. to hear your thoughts on it. Excellent. So, listeners, we'll be back soon with that, along with Seed of Chucky, and then we've decided, or I just said, hey, we're doing this next. Uh, once we wrap up Child's Play, we are road tripping down to Texas to cover all nine Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies and i fucking can't i'm already researching the first one so that'll that can't wait so that's that's next and we're out hey